Welcome, everybody. Uh, kind of lost count on what week we're at. I think it's week 44 or week 45. Mm. Um, but uh, great to see everybody here tonight, today, wherever you are in the world. One thing we're trying to do is like a min hug of the hub right now is for people to put into the chat uh, the city that they're in right now. Because uh, it's always nice to know the broad uh, array of Talmudim and Talmudot that we have from around the world. Um, quick housekeeping as usual. Um, membership mode was supposed to be launched this week, but uh, we've had some additional exciting news, which has uh, forced us to delay membership mode for by one week because it required some extra preparation. So be prepared for the launch with the curriculum next week, please God, uh, as well as a launch video that, as I mentioned on last week's call that we shot and uh, really, really excited to present it all to you. Now, this week's Chabura, we're honored to welcome back Professor Zvi Zohar. I call him Hacham Zvi Zohar. I know many people in the group call him Hacham Zvi. Um, Professor Zohar, as, as we know, uh, he studies three years at Makaz Harav Yeshiva. Um, one of the leading authorities uh, on the classical Sephardi approach, his book that many of us have spoken about in the discussion group, and um, we're planning to offer as one of the free books for members from July, um, really influenced a lot of us, uh, an array of uh, sources on rabbinic creativity in the modern Middle East, uh, a, a really important book on classical Sephardi thought and practice. Um, formerly professor of Sephardic law at Barilan University, and tonight we'll be touching upon a hacham that was one of the greatest hachamim of 19th century uh, era, really. Hacham Israel Moshe Chazan, somebody who doesn't get enough attention. And uh, tonight we'll dig into a very important topic on with regards to our relation as Jews with non-Jews and non-Jewish culture. I think it's an often misunderstood or often uh, misconceived area of both halakha and thought. So I'm very excited to have Professor Zohar, Hacham Zohar, here tonight with us. So. Professor Bachavod, the stage is yours. Um, okay, uh, I don't know what to say. Good evening, good morning. I see that we have people from Australia. So who knows where we are? Somewhere in the universe. And um, this uh, meeting is one of two meetings. I think the next one is in two weeks from now, which is, uh, going to be devoted to a certain teshuvah written by Rav Yisrael Moshe Chazan. And uh, I've been rereading it and going over it and preparing the material over the past few days. And I realized that there's no way we're gonna actually get through all of this material in two sessions, but uh, we will have more than a taste of uh, the way Rav Yisrael Moshe Chazan uh, deals with issues and how he thinks. And at, he was born in 1808 and passed away in beginning of 1863, I believe. And uh, so this Teshuvah is from 18. 48, meaning he was exactly 40 years old. And at the time he was the chief rabbi of the Jewish community of Rome. 
which at that time was still in the uh, area of the ghetto. And he explains at the beginning of this uh, teshuvah that um, people weren't coming on time to Bet Knesset, and therefore he made up for them a very detailed uh, table of, you know, we have Shaud Zemaniot, so the noon does shifts uh, according to the regular clocks, and so he made a table for this, which was translated into Italian, but this didn't really work. And then he had the idea that if there would be um, in, in the central area where they had five Batekenesit all gathered together, if they would be able to have a tower and on the top of it, a big clock and the clock would strike the hours and the quarter hours and so on, and everybody in the ghetto would be able to hear it, nobody would be able to say that they didn't realize it was time for tefillah. Um, so he suggested that they should do this, whereupon um, the Gabaim of the synagogue said, that would, that's a very nice idea. It would probably be very useful. However, you know, we're in the city of Rome, and uh, quite a few churches have such towers outside them with clocks that strike the hour. And um, you know that in churches, the, the, what do they strike the hour with? They, they have bills. Part of the system, they have bills. And you know that the bills in the church are part of the church tradition and religion. And therefore, wouldn't it be a problem vis-a-vis Hukot HaGoyim, the ways or the norms of the nations, for us to have such a tower and a, with a clock and striking the hour with bells in our synagogue? And this Teshuvah presents itself as somebody's waiting to get into the... You know, this teshuvah presents itself as a response to that question. As we shall see, in order to answer that question, he needed about what turns out to be about maybe 20% of the teshuvah or even less. And this teshuvah, he takes the opportunity to address in general, major issues of Chukot Goyim, which was, I think, just in the past Parashat uh, Shavua, and Chukotehem Lot Elechu, right? And uh, this phrase has become, rightly so, as Chazal developed it, a, a motto for the idea that in some circles, that if the going do A, we have to do the opposite. We certainly shouldn't do A because we are like Am Levadad Yishkon, uh, people that dwells alone, and therefore we should not 
they doing, what they're going to do. And Rabbi Soy Moshe Chazan realized that, and this is what he takes up in this Teshuva, which also has other interesting aspects. So uh, I would like now to share the screen with you. Some of you may have also the text itself before you um, in any case. Okay, so here we are. And okay, so this is the Kerach Shel Romi. It was not printed in his lifetime, but was printed by his nephew, uh, who at that time was a rabbi in uh, Libya, in Tripoli, uh, Eliyahu Chazan, who was an interesting, very interesting rabbi in his own right. Okay, so at this time, I think it was 1876, that it was published, Eliyahu Chazan, who was a relative of his, was Roshmata Vereshmetivta Veir Veembi Israel Terablus Hamarav, Tripoli of the West, because Tripoli of the East, Terablus is a city in northern Lebanon of our time. And here we'll go down and we'll see that the first question, the first question that comes up is. This question, <clears throat> and he tells about the uh, problems that he had with people getting to prayer at the right time. Alken gazarti omer lehadesh keli hashaot anikra orologio ulekov o bechatzar betakeneset o bechutz veshuv lo yelahem maane lehashiv. They won't have anything to answer once this. Uh, clock uh, reminds them continuously of what time it is. So the Gabaim uh, agreed that this was a good idea. And he says, but they raised the question. Meaning a bell, that hits, uh, uh, reverberates with the hours. Meaning Sha'on, what we call a clock. With a bell that strikes. It's not only on the churches. Other places in the city also have this, and some people have this in their private homes. This is not part of the religious services of the Christians to have these clothes. Nevertheless, they're asking, shouldn't go and follow the, the ways of the goyim, please instruct us, Rabbi, how this fits according to halacha, he will be doubly rewarded from heaven. And he says that he, to go into this whole issue from Abi Inizio from the beginning, it, it, it's too long. You can write a book about this or several books. And therefore, he says, 
let's start from the well-known teshuvah that has summed up the position on this issue. Teshuvah tagaon mo'orevenu avra bi Yosef kulon zikholach ha'yolam ababi teshuvah siman pechet. In response from 88 of Rabbi Yosef Kulon, who was one of the Rishonim, he lived in northern Italy, he died in 1460, I believe. And this, the notion, the topic that was dealt with, he teshuvat heter levishat hakappa shel to permit uh, Jews to wear the kappa, which is a, a cape, a garment, shel of the Christian uh, priests, Christian religious priests. Now, actually, it's a bit less direct than that, okay? If, if you were in Italy and you went to university and you learned medicine, um, or you had a you studied medicine under someone else and you reached the highest level, you could wear a certain item of clothing, which was very striking and impressive. And everybody who saw you wearing that would know that you are a top expert doctor and therefore you could get very good pay and high respect and so on, but the problem was that it's not the medical school in Italy that invented what type of garment indicates high rank. And they got the idea from the Roman Catholic Church. Of course, the Roman Catholic Church ultimately didn't get it from Jesus, who didn't wear these very splendid clothing. They got it from the Roman senators and nobility be that as it may, um, it came through the church and now was adapted also for uh, the, uh, the clothing of medical uh, practitioners of a high rank. And a Jew wanted to know, could he wear that uh, garment, the kappa, the cape, uh, indicating his status as a, a master physician. And Rabbi Yosef Kulon wrote a, a lengthy teshuvah on this topic. And he said, this is sort of the summary, the bottom line of that discussion. It seems simple to me. This is not forbidden because of Okay, because the only reason that we couldn't have for forbidding something under the category of is one of two possibilities. One possibility. Okay, we typically speak about chukim u'mishpatim and the difference between these two uh, classically is that mishpatim are rules or norms that we know what the reason or the rationale behind them is. 
and hukim are those laws or rules of Torah of Halach, that we don't know what the reason is. Like the classic example, right, is paraduma. Now, some would say, well, we don't know the reason for the chok. There must be some reason. As far as we're concerned, we don't know it, and therefore we just obey even without knowing the reason. But the classic also hok doesn't have any justification, any rational justification. It's simply that's the rule. And similarly, hokota goim is rules held by the goim for which there's absolutely no rationale per se, except that's how things have to be done. Okay. The second reason for classifying something as forbidden under the rubric of Chukot Agoyim, Okay, behavior which is radically improper and uh, um, overtly goes against the grain of values of tsniut and uh, so on that we hold can also be forbidden under the rubric of chukot aguim. Okay, uh, just a minute, I went down too much, sorry. Okay, and therefore, what does he say? We're going now to the other side here. Okay, and he summarizes more and more. And the conclusion is, Chutz any practice of the goyim that is not connected to some aspect of their religion, which is absolutely opaque, even to them, they don't know what the rationale is, that's how it should be done. Or it's something which goes against the grain of propriety and modesty in our tradition, Anything else that they're going to do that doesn't fall under these two categories, we, the Jews, can feel fully free to act in the exact same way that they're going to act. Because this is something in which the souls or the persona of all human beings are equal and it they all need this one this is something which all creatures all human creatures um, need and are attuned to and it's meaningful to them 
ונכללים בהם ישראלים ואומות העולם. Unlike what some people might think that there's a binary opposition on the one side growing and the one other side Jews, no. There is a third category which is most of everything, which is an overlap, which is human beings. Okay, so in certain extreme cases, the goyim are goyim and we can't behave like them and we are Jews and we're different, but basically there's a large common middle, okay, of kol beriot ma'aseh breshit, all human creatures v'nichlalim bahem yisraelim ve'umot ha'olam. Okay, so this is a statement which, as far as I recall, Rabbi Yosef Kulon himself doesn't phrase it that way, but this is the overall generalization that Rabbi Yisrael Moshe Chazan derives from uh, the uh, Teshuvah of Rabbi Kulon. And then he says, okay, so let's see what is now meaning, what does this all mean for the question before us, which is the question of the clock, right? So he says, look, the reason that churches have clocks, and by the way, it's not only churches, is because they are public buildings, and in the public buildings, they provide this timepiece, which declares the hour by a certain type of bill, for the public good. That's the reason the churches built this. He said, now he says, they have a different type of bill, which is not part of the mechanical arrangement of the clock. It's a bell that they pull by ropes and they ring the bells and those bells, um, um, originally were installed in order to call all the people together, but meanwhile have come to have religious significance. He says, But the clock itself is not a religious practice or object, and it's not something which goes against the grain of propriety or modesty that people should know what time it is. And then he says, Even let's say that they had installed the clock in the church. Why? So that people would know what time it is and they could come to the service in the church. Nevertheless, it would be permitted for us to do that. Why? This, even if they had installed the clock to get people to know when to come to church, it's not really part of the church service. It's just a, a way to get them to come there. And there's a second reason. 
כיוון דלא ישראלי העושה הוא טעמו ידוע ונגלה, when we the Jews now want to install such a clock in our bit Knesset, is it a chok that we don't know why it's happening? We know exactly there's a rationale, the rationale is transparent, okay? טעמו ידוע ונגלה שהישראלי לא סולט דמות ואינו דבר תמוה, we're not doing it in order to imitate the goyim, It's not something strange and opaque. It has a clear and obvious reason. All the people who can't afford to have a clock of their own, but the Jews who live in that area, they'll know what time it is. If people will use it, they'll only become suspicious. They'll know when it's time to go to work and it's a public service and it has nothing to do with something that is forbidden because it has no time and no reason. Okay. How else can we also know that it's not something that's inherently part of their religious practice? Some have a clock, some don't. So it's not obviously part of their religious practice to have these clocks ringing the hours. Why did they, yes, have clocks in the main churches? It's a public service and it's not an act of opaque religious practice. Okay, and therefore, then he says, well, is it pritzat gederat sniut? Is this something immodest? He says, no, there's nothing immodest about it. Sheinyan kazein lo reach shachatz vegaava. This has nothing to do with, with pride and overweening uh, even people who aren't rich can, if they want to, buy such a clock. Furthermore, if you want to say that it's forbidden, Okay. Yeah, so, okay, if you say that having a clock somehow expresses something which is immodest, inappropriate, and goyish, that, that we Jews don't want to act, do things with this quality. So first of all, we have to say that people can't have clocks in their own house. And only then, could we come and say, well, if people don't have it in the houses, can the public establish such? And the ain't we typically we don't impose strictures on the public, which we might impose on uh, individuals. Okay. And then he says, okay, so it's basically it's mutar, right? He says, but let's say somebody would tell us 
that nevertheless, with all due respect, people who don't know otherwise would point out, and it's really the case that after all, the bills sound very much like the bills of a church and the church bells are part of their religious practices. And therefore, even though ostensibly uh, there's nothing wrong with it, the very fact that it's similar to what the Goyim do, it should be inappropriate for us. <clears throat> okay, so now we will respond and say, There's no ground to hold with this idea that inherently it has a good reason. And it's not something that's immodest or extrovert. So what's wrong with it? is rational. Let's say the Goyim would be doing something and they don't know why they're doing it. It's just that their ancestors kept doing it. Okay, their ancestors kept whenever they went to church, they would take a toothpick and would clean their teeth. They do that and they don't know why they're doing it in church. That's how we've been doing it for a thousand years. And now I, as a Jew, had the idea that I would like to use a toothpick after I eat to make sure my teeth are clean. Just a minute to go and we're doing it. Okay, but I'm not doing it for the same reason. I'm allowed to do it. It's an act of religious worship for them. Since the Jewish person is not doing it for the same reason that they're doing it. The Jewish person is doing it for a reason, he can give you a good reason that's absolutely transparent and clear. At this point, we disregard the fact that they're doing it for some strange reason of their own that they don't even know why, and for them it's a hawk. But we're now doing it, not as a hawk, but for some very good rationale that we can give. And he says, you know what? You might say that this is like Matseva, okay? In parentheses, the Matseva was an upright stone that people used to set up and worship God uh, via or at the site of that stone. And we have the Avot doing it, okay, all the time. And then later on in the Torah, it says, that we shouldn't have a matzeva asher sane Hashem that God hates it. And the rabbis explained, well, originally God didn't hate it because that's why the avot did it. But later on, 
the goyim adopted it. Once the goyim adopted it, we have to desist. Okay. And he says, okay, so, but let's say he says that, just a minute, where am I? Okay, let's say that we're not allowed to worship God via this block of stone. He says, but, Let's say I wanted to take a block of stone, looks just like the matzeva that they're going to use, and I use it as a bench to sit on in my garden. He says, okay, that's fine. I'm taking something that looks like the same object, using it for a different purpose, which is not anything to do with religion, and I know why I'm doing it. Everybody can see why I'm doing it. I'm using it as a bench in my garden. He says, Okay, and therefore he says the fact that the Goyim use it, and even if they were to be using these church clocks in their religion, it wouldn't be forbidden to us to do that. Okay, and what's more, it's not something that only the Christians do in their churches. There's public buildings with such clocks. Everyone around the world has such clocks. Since it's not something that is unique and special for the Christian religion. Let's say that we would have a cloth and the cloth would have attached to it bells. And they're not like what's usually in a mechanical clock, big bells like they have in the church. And this clock, when the hour came, would strike giant bells, just like church bells. He says, Mutar, Kevan de Lamb me avodatam ka gamrinan, ela me alma gamrinan. The idea of having such a machine, a mechanical clock with reverberating bells to tell what time it is, is not something that we are adopting from the Christian religion. Rather, we are following a logic which is clear to the entire world when we're learning it from humanity in general. And he says, you know what? This idea is also found in a responsum of Bach, Bait Hadas, it's Rabbi Yol Sirkis, who lived in uh, Europe, an Ashkenazic rabbi. And he said, he was asked, now, as we'll see, immediately it's not the case that Jews were one to one adopting the exact compositions that were being used in churches. Rather, the type of musical modes that the Jews were using in the synagogue 
was the same type of musical mode, same type of melodies, same type of uh, harmonies and whatever that the Goyim were using in the uh, uh, um, churches. That's what the Bach was asked about. Katav, in other words, what we are forbidden to do, the says, is to take a musical composition exactly that's used in church, a Bach, chorale, whatever, and use it in our Bet Knesset. We can't do that because that's a Chok, Zara. If we use tunes that are similar to the type that's used in churches, but not identical, because we can say and such, we didn't learn it, this specific tune from the church. We learned it because that's the type of tunes that people in general think is appropriate for these type of activities. So really at this point, at this point, Rab, uh, Israel Sheikh Hazan has solved the problem. The problem was, can we have such a bell tower clock in our synagogue for reasons of getting the people to come on time? And the answer is yes, it is not, it's not a hook, it's rational. Everybody does it. The Christians, when they do it, they don't do it for religious reasons, for, for practical public reasons. And uh, it's a similarity to the sound of a bell per se is not something that renders it a sore. So at this point, we can all go home because the question is solved. But to a certain extent, this whole issue, this whole question, Ravi Soimo Shekhazan is using as a setup to really proceed further and give us certain insights and positions of his that are not connected to the clocks. And he says, You know what the Bach, what Rabbi said about the music, that we can use music of the same type as church music, but we can't really take the exact same tunes from the church. You know what? Since it's come up, let's say something about that. Now, obviously, this is when it came up. He brought it up, right? When he brought it up, he knew why he was bringing it up because he wants now to talk about that, and what does he want to say? Remember, what did the Bach say? The exact tune from the church we can't use, 
but we can use tunes of similar quality and melodic arrangement. With asking great pardon from the holy holiness of the Bach of your Sirkis, because it's something arbitrary, which the Goyim took, and now if we use it, it's also going to be arbitrary. He says, but that's not the same as music. Why did the Avot Dafka worship God by setting up these blocks of stone? Is there something in a block of stone which especially symbolizes God in a very clear way? No, it was an arbitrary convention. The Goim, the Knaanim, now took this exact same opaque, un, incomprehensible mode of worship, and they took it for Avodah Zarah. Okay, because that's what Chok means is something that we don't know. We don't know the reason. And really, if we really want to worship God, why do we have to use Dafka and that? We could worship God otherwise. Okay, in biblical times, before the temple in Jerusalem, it was permitted to have Bamot, small sanctuaries. Or in Jerusalem. Right? So if people would say, well, if the Goyim took the Matseva, how are we going to worship God? Baruch Hashem, there's many other possibilities. Okay. But he says, you'll see that while the Matseva, which was adopted by the Goyim, was forbidden to us, the same didn't happen with the main core forms of worship that were in vogue at that time. Sacrifices. Bring a good scent up to God. And that's the reason why the Korbanot is to create this of uh, barbecued meat wonderful smell. There's reason for the... He says, now, actually, the Avodah Zarah had many forms of worship. Did God forbid us to use all of the forms of worship that the Goyim had? No. It can't be that everything that they're going to do, even if it has a certain rationale, and according to that rationale, we understand why it's appropriate for the service of God, Avodat Hashem, to use that. 
the fact that they're going to do it is not a reason to deny it to us. Okay. Music is like Kobanot in ancient times. Shehu guf Music is a core part of worship. What does that mean? With our souls submitting themselves to God in a pleasant tune. This atmosphere is created and maintained by music. Let's say that the type of music, the exact specific music that's used in churches really works. It really makes a strong impression on the religious experience. By the way, that's why the Goyim are doing it. Right? And this is necessary for the proper religious experience. Could it be possible to imagine that because the Goyim took this wonderful music and are using it in their church, we will now be forbidden for our religious experience to be enhanced by this wonderful music. Because this is one of the five senses which influence our experience. Oh, he said, sensuary, sensual experience was part and parcel of the temple service, korbanot uketoret, and God didn't forbid them to us because the goyim are doing it. Why was that? There is a certain aspect of human experience which is basic to all humans. All humans are moved and impressed and get experience from certain senses, sensual experiences. Also human beings are moved by music. Which music affects us? 
the music that in the culture we live in, we associate and have been taught from early age and inculcated from the surrounding culture that this type of music is sad music. And this type of music is martial music. And this type of music is sublime music. And this is which music affects us how? It's the cultural convention in which we grew up. Can, for instance, an Italian Jewish person can he now go against the grain of the musical culture in which he grew up in Italy? And his, he will be religiously positively affected. Let's say we say, okay, we can't use the music from the churches. What can we use? Well, let's take something from the theater. Let's take something from the circus. Let's take something from the popular street music. If the idea is that anything that the Christians or the coin use as a sensual part of their divine service, we can't use it. So obviously there are certain things that even if they're going to do it, we do it, they do it in their divine service and we do it in our divine service, why? because it works. Something that's natural and every nation experiences this type of music in this way. But each one uses this type of music, which is religious music, music which in this culture gives you a sublime or intense or devout religious experience, each person in that culture will use the same type of music, each one in their religious services. If you would now come to forbid using the vocabulary, the musical vocabulary and the musical modes and the type of music that works in this culture as religious music, you won't be able to really maintain life in a proper way. And then he says, Vishuva Hashemet and Ayu Matsati Davar Meforashke Beata Bekotha 
בגדול, אדוננו הרמב״ם בספר המורה, חלק ג', סוף פרק מ"ז, יסוד פרק מ"ו, and we'll see that in a moment, but first note what he's doing. In order to argue a point of halacha about what's asu and what's mutar in our uh, religious activities, and to say that this is somehow common, or can be common to the Jews and the non-Jews, he's saying that this is something that you'll see from learning the Morei HaNevuchim, and um, just a minute, now I have to switch to here, oh, and here is an edition of Morei HaNevuchim, and as you know, in the part three of Morei HaNevuchim, the Rambam says he's going to explain the rationale and the meaning of what was going on in the Beit HaMikdash. And inter alia, the Rambam says, How is it possible that God in the temple permitted the use or advocated the use of wine? <coughs> but on, and that's why I'm showing you this one, the commentator Shem Tov ben Yosef ben Shem Tov ben Shem Tov, who died in 1493, a year after the explosion, in his commentary says, so the Rambam doesn't, can't explain why wine is permitted. Shem Tov says, I already explained to you why there was a table inside Beit HaMikdash with bread. This is the same rationale that works for the table, works for the wine. And here, you look here, in chapter 45, the previous chapter, Ramam says what? About the shulchan. Ha-shulchan ve-hayyot ha-lechem alav tamid lo-edano siba. I can't understand the rationale why there's a table with bread in Beit HaMikdash, inside with the menorah, right? And the same room of Kodesh was Shulchan. Oh, Amar Shem Tov. Here's the explanation of Shem Tov. The whole construction of Beit HaMikdash was for why God doesn't need it. Who needs it? We. It's for our religious experience that God made this whole construction and this construction follows the theme of the palace of a king. And 
There were people standing guard in the palace of a king and in the Mikdash. People doing the service appropriate to the king. We're preparing the food and everything. Who's that? The Kohanim that are being Korbanot. There are other people who sing to the king because the king likes music. Who's that? There's a place for food. There's wonderful smells of ketoret, and that's also in the Mikdash. There's a table. A place where the king sits. Only very special people can come and actually enter the chamber where the king is. Okay, God doesn't really need this. He is a supreme being, a supreme king that doesn't need this, but what? All of these things were fashioned in order to create the impression of a king's palace. Is in order for God to be experienced as a king. The whole construction of the Mikdash is in order to provide human beings with a certain type of experiences that will make upon them the feeling that this is an incredible religious experience of the great king okay and now he says and so he goes into this and he says that okay so from this discussion we learn two good things Right? Why is there wine in the Mikdash? Because kings had wine in their palaces. Begam ta'am hashir. Why was the music in the Mikdash? Because this was part of the sensory experience and wonderful feeling created by music that kings had, and therefore it's also in Beit HaMikdash. Which things that going to do are forbidden to us? Things that they do that have no good rationale. Okay, so. Um, okay, I think we've reached the our time limit, so I'll sum up by saying that uh, you see that, first of all, Rabbi Sal Moshe Chazan has followed 
the uh, Yosef Kulon by saying that Chukot Agrim means only things which have no good rationale or are somehow strikingly against the grain of uh, morality and modesty. And that clock is neither of these. Furthermore, he says, the whole issue of music in a religious setting is to create a certain powerful religious experience. And therefore, the, and a powerful religious, a powerful musical experience is culture bound. In a certain culture, certain types of music create certain types of experiences. Other types of music create other kind of experiences, and it's not the same in culture A and culture B. But in culture A, the Jews and the non-Jews have the same sensibilities. And therefore, if music works, and a certain type of music works, the fact that the Goyim use it in their divine service is for a very clear reason, to create a certain type of powerful religious experience. That being the case, okay, we can use the same and should use the same type of music because the goal is clear, it's rational, it's empirically part of that culture, this kind of music, and therefore, whatever, if they're going to use it in their divine service, we can and should use it in ours. Okay. That's for now. And uh, I suppose now that uh, if perhaps anybody wants to raise questions or comments, uh, we should you, be able to do that. Thank you so much, Professor. Um, gonna look at some questions in the chat. I mean, for me, it's very interesting because it seems to be that the hacham is able to acknowledge that there are some primal drives that human beings have or primal preferences that it's not, it's not something Christian or Islamic or Hindu or Buddhist. It's just that primal drive for certain music that can provide religious awe. And there is no need to have it labeled Christian or Islamic or this or that. It is a human reality. And for that reason, there's no reason why we shouldn't absorb that in uh you know bring it into our own avodah so thank you for that um i'm just going to look into the chat if anyone wants to ask a question by actually unmuting uh please do so otherwise do leave your question in the chat anybody got a question yeah i do yes mr garson yes rabbi um professor i i very concerned by uh rab shem tov ben shem tov ben shem tov explanation for the Shulchan and the Yayin, because if the whole purpose of the exercise is to emulate a king's palace in all its glory, where's the bedroom, which is one of the main areas of the king? It becomes a nonsense to actually attribute um, the Rabbam's uh, inexplicable analysis of these particular activities to copying a king's palace. Um. Okay, so first of all, uh, that might be an interesting critique of Shem Tov. And by extension, of course, 
the whole idea that a temple is needed with a lot of gold and marble and a tremendous investment and hundreds of animals uh, on Kobanot. I mean, and, and this, the Levim standing and singing there and, and so on. Okay, so in a certain sense, and I can see that I'm not arguing, this is a broader critique of the whole need for a mikdash. Okay, and uh, well, you know that Lama uh, himself says that Kobanot and so on were a concession to the religious sensibilities at that time. And just like uh, it was unimaginable to them at that time that you don't need the Kobanot, you can just pray by voice and words. And the Ram says, but for the same similarity, you know, uh, it's, we're used to praying with words. And if somebody were to come and say to us that you can just worship God by meditation, that would seem equally incredible to us. You have, you have, to me, Rabbi, you have, for example, the, um, what I understand was a very Jewish habit of actually prostrating yourself on the ground for prayer. We don't have this anymore. This is forbidden now. We only do it once a year on Kippur. Yes, but uh, it's probably forbidden. Uh, is it Hukato uh, Goi uh, now? Uh, uh, well, as you know, uh, um, oh, as you may recall, uh, actually the son of the Rambam, Avraham ben Rambam, advocated that this was the original correct practice followed by all of the prophets and all of the great uh, yeah. religious Jews of ancient times. And in his time, he says, the Sufis, learn those practices somehow from the ancient original Jewish religion and Jews should re-adopt it. Okay, so uh, 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 he would say that in Achinami, this is a very, now uh, I must say that when I, on Yom HaKippurim, uh, I happen to have written, by the way, an article about Seder Abodah, okay, but when I, on Yom HaKippurim, prostrate myself subjectively okay it's a very powerful religious experience yeah i agree right so the reason that we don't do that is interesting i don't know how it developed and some people say well it's because the christians did it but there's a lot of other things that Christians did. For instance, they use wine. We use wine in our services. We don't use Christian wine, but we use wine. Wine is very prevalent in, in Kiddush, Havdalah, Berit, Chupa. So certain things we have maintained. And uh, so the idea that sensory experiences are important aspects of our religious life 
is something that I think that uh, in some ways we can acknowledge, even if some of us are more rationalistically inclined. And this is something that Rabbi Islam Shekhazan is pushing. He says the sensory aspect of human life can and should be involved in the divine service of God. Thank you, Rabbi. Thank you. Uh, if I could add as well, I mean, uh, I prostrate much to my wife's shock when she sees me pray. Uh, and I know a lot of Yemenites do. There's actually a recent picture of the Rishon LeZion was in Dubai to meet the uh, new Yemenites that had emigrated to Dubai. And he's sitting there watching the Yemenite community that had just emigrated uh, prostrate. So still to this day, you have those obviously still follow Nusachar Rambam uh doing so uh, and there are of course a lot of christians these days unfortunately actually wearing tefillin it's becoming more and more popular yeah, what, that's you know, that's, that's, they believe that that's what jesus did so indeed they have to do it also. so it's going to be very interesting to see what happens if that becomes a norm just like uh the, the some groups stole prostration from us if they steal tefillin from us does that mean we stop wearing tefillin get on i see you've got your hands up yes thank you hi thank you for the sure um, so, from my understanding, Chukat Agoyim is primarily based on the two Gemaras, one in Sanhedrin and one in Vorzara, right? Broadly speaking. Um, so, does does the Chacham in his Shuva uh, discuss the seeming contradiction between the two? Because the Gemara in Sanhedrin seems to be mashma that um, that there needs to be some sort of basis in Tanakh for us doing a practice that the Goyim did, like with the with this specific example is the burning of the, the funeral pyre of the king. So the, the Gemara there says you can do it because it's in Tanakh. Whereas it seem that if what the, what the Chacham is saying, that you would be able to do it because of other reasons, not because it's in Tanakh. Whereas the Gemara felt the need to use that um, that you used to use it, use that that explanation of why it's, it's, it's allowed. So does he does he discuss that, or does does the professor have maybe some sort of understanding of what he would say to that? Um, well, um, I do think that he alludes to that, but uh, taking you up on that issue, of course, um, music was in Tanakh. Okay, the whole Beit Hamikdash was full of music, instrumental music and vocal music. So you really don't have to that there's no problem with the Gemara in Sanhedrin to enable music, right? And the question is then, okay, which kind of music? And then he would say, well, the music that works in a certain culture in time is the music that would be appropriate to use in uh, Jewish religious services and the fact that Goim also have, because they live all live in Italy or all live in uh, uh, Arab countries, so they have different uh, makamot, but if they live in Turkey, then they have other kind of makamot because in Turkey it's a different type of musical, and the Jews in Turkey, ha, they have the same type of musical scale that the non Jews in Turkey have. And then if you go to Morocco, so they have the Andalusian music, which I'm told that uh, the kings 
used to invite uh, people like Rav Haim Luk, who now lives in Jerusalem, a wonderful, amazing person, uh, to perform because the Jews had a wonderful command of the Andalusian tr musical tradition, which the Moroccan Muslims really appreciated as the greatest music. So according to what the professor is saying, could it, could it be said, and maybe I'm very off base here, that, that the music in the, in the Beit HaMikdash was not um, some sort of essentially holy or correct music, but it was more of a reflection of some amalgamation of, of original Jewish thought mixed with the music of the surrounding peoples. And that was what was used in the, in the Beit HaMikdash, according to, according to the, the, the professor or the Chacham. Well, first of all, uh... Um, uh, um, I, I, just, I understand that that's a, a very interesting historical question, right? What was the music used in Beit HaMikdash? But um, it, it doesn't seem to be the case that the Levim had special type of musical instruments that they invented ex nihilo and were not in use among the Babylonian, the Assyrians, or the, the local people like Nevel, Kinor, and so on. And it says, who I Vico Lochez Nevel Bechinor, who's that? That's a Goy, right? So, Tuval Kain, right? So, Goyim invented music, and the Jews were part of this now. It's to be assumed that there were composers, right? That created music for the Levim, but did they do this in a musical scales or style that was completely alien to everything else in the world? So would say probably not because it would work and get the spiritual effect only if it was resonating with the experiences that people had were growing up and uh, uh, becoming involved in all different types of activities. And that's where people get their musical sensibilities from. So I, that's what I assume Rabbi Moshe Hazan would say. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, Gary, welcome. Good to see you. Go ahead. Hi. Thanks. Um, so I just wanted to ask a quick question, not necessarily about the, the source we were just looking at, which was very interesting, but I guess there's a slight correlation. I wanted to ask about Kinatzion, um, which Chacham Yisra Moshchazan wrote, um, and whether or not the professor has, is able to comment on its effectiveness in, in producing a kind of uh, a universal um, declaration against the Brunswick Conference and some of the decisions that were made there, or whether the language employed, and I, I've only looked at it, I had a cursory look at it, um, but it seemed to me that it may not have achieved what it set out to achieve, maybe because the language was not aimed at certain types of Jews, but more aimed at, at rabbis in order to encourage them to, to speak out against it. I don't know if the professor can speak about that if he's got any kind of thoughts about that. Um, well, um, in the case at hand, uh, 
do I understand that you are maintaining that this entire attitude that Rabbi Samoshe Chazan is advocating in this teshuvah is in order to serve some extraneous political purpose vis-a-vis the goyim? No. Uh, okay, so I didn't understand. No, I'm just, I'm, I was looking at the language in Kinatzion and I understand why it's written and I understand the signatures that there was everyone who signed it, including uh, the father of Chacham uh, Gagin as well. And the question is, with regards to attitudes towards modernity and looking through the prism, the misgeret of halacha, and making sure that these things are, the, the, the work of Kinatzion specifically written against um, the sort of burgeoning reform movement, was that language ever going to achieve what it set out to achieve? Is my question like the the? Uh, in other words, uh, uh, okay, I I didn't uh, understand. In yeah, other words, yeah, I was you're saying clear. that Rabbi Yisrael Moshe Chazan was a participant in uh, activities of rabbis at the time against uh, the reform movement. Of the um, I don't recall now the exact thing, but there was very harsh language. Uh, yes, employed, and well, uh, first of all, uh, I, I haven't studied the the, uh, the language, and I certainly don't know whether it was efficient. Uh, in many cases, also today, people that make such proclamations or use such language really don't hope to influence the opponent, they hope to have a effect upon their own public to feel very strongly against whatever it is that they're against. Uh, and you see this in many cases, but um, um, so, so that's a good question, but I, I would prefer to focus on the issues that are raised in this teshuvah, which um, in a certain sense, in a certain sense, you could say is uh, antithetical to the content of this. And as as you uh, may recall, uh, the reform, the early reformers that wanted to use instrumental music in a synagogue, which of course on Shabbat, which of course they wanted it to be performed by a goy, the goy, a non-Jew, would come and play the musical instruments in the synagogue on Shabbat. And they turned to rabbis in Italy. This was before, obviously, Moshe Chazan was there, but they turned to rabbis in Italy, who gave them a teshuvah that, yes, um, you could do that because the fact that there were instrumental music in synagogues, on Yom Chol had been done, for instance, in Prague, but they used it in Kabbalat Shabbat, which was before the sunset. And then immediately before Mizmor Shil Yom Shabbat, they wheeled out this musical instrument and they continued only with vocal music 
uh, on the Shabbat service. So the use of cleaning uh, uh, in the synagogue itself, there were precedents. And then they pointed out there were precedents for Jews to invite. If you know that, okay, a baby is born on Shabbat. Yiltzah Hashem, eight days now, Shabbat is going to be a celebration. So the various communities, it's a Devara Mitzvah, you could invite a Gentile troupe of musicians under certain things, contract, where you could have going Goisha Shabbat do things, and they would play music at the Brit, or at the Sheva Berachot on Shabbat, and the, some rabbis in Italy said, okay, therefore, since there's a precedent for using musical instruments and there's a precedent for uh, going, playing musical instruments on Shabbat for the benefit of Jewish mitzvot, you could do that in a synagogue on Shabbat. Um, what happened was ultimately that whatever avenue early reformers who at that point were not yet inclined to go against halakha outright. So whatever way they suggested, well, let's justify it this way, let's justify it that way and so on. And then they got the answer, forget it, ahadash asumina Torah. And therefore, ultimately, after about 20 years, they were very frustrated that they had this convention in Braunschweig and they said, no, the Talmudic halacha doesn't obligate us. But was it necessary to reach that point? <laughs> it could be that you say, well, you know, we don't really appreciate this teshuvah of the Italian rabbis. We don't do that. We won't do that in our synagogue. But if you really want to do that and you have this, no, do it. And then who knows if the reform would have gotten to the point of saying that the Talmudic halacha doesn't obligate us. So there's a certain chicken and egg here, which. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you, Raf. Thank you. I mean, you're now almost midnight in Israel, so I don't want to take any more of your time, Professor. Thank you so, so much. And thank you, everyone, for being here. Uh, we look forward to continuing part two uh, in a couple of weeks' time. Next week, we have Ravi Tzchak Perdugo of Miami. He will be giving us uh, a shiur on Hacham Yosef Meshash uh, and going through some of his uh, the principles in his teshuvot. So we're very excited for that. Uh, Professor Hacham, thank you so much again. Okay. Laila Tov. Looking forward to seeing you Boker soon. Tov, wherever you are. <laughs> and uh, Indeed. see you in two weeks' time. See you then. Thank you, everybody. Good night. Thanks for listening. We hope you enjoyed. Be sure to give us a rating on Apple Podcasts. Have a great day.